I'm Lizzie Mathis, and you're listening to the Cool Mom Code Podcast, where motherhood is your key card to the coolest spot in town. This week is an absolute honor as we welcome Sade Lithcott to the mic. As the CEO of the groundbreaking National Black Theater, Sade oversees the legacy of the nation's first revenue-generating Black arts complex. Yes, you heard that right. This mama of one son is inspiring a whole new generation. Join us as we jump into her invigorating journey, exploring how motherhood and following in the footsteps of family legends intertwines with her groundbreaking role and new vision. Let's start off. You are a New York City girl through and through. I mean, I was like, wow, not was not only was she born in New York City, went to school in New York City, lives in New York City. I mean, New York City all day for you. Oh, my God. Can I just tell you, it's so funny because I have these long locks now. And I always I love telling people when they ask me where I'm from, I'm like, I'm an island girl. And everyone <laughs> always thinks like, oh, what island are you from? Like the Caribbean, I'm like Manhattan. I no am, way. Like, Ten toes down. Yeah. It's a love hate relationship with any like it's the longest relationship I've ever had. Right. Is this city. I love being from New York and I love to leave New York, but I always know I'm coming back. Like these are my roots for sure. It's funny because I'm from Detroit. And I went to school in Chicago. And then I spent about 10 years in New York. Mm-hmm. And so when people always ask me, I'm like, New York is where I, or I'm sorry, Detroit is where I was raised, but New York is where I became a woman. And mm-hmm. I feel like always, and I just, I have the fondest memories of New York is where I met my husband and we dipped out right before we had kids. So I'm always curious of, right? Like you see this lifestyle with like kids in New York City you, not only were you raised there, I feel like they you mature so much quicker as a kid in New York City. You have to. You're just thrown yeah. into it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the crazy part. It's like I grew up hearing like on television or reading in articles or books. Why like why would anybody want to raise a kid in New York? You know, like as much as we have a great reputation for like arts, culture, entertainment, blah, 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 fin- finance, Wall Street, all that. We also have this equally bad rap for like, you know, people are mean or rude or crime. And I've never understood why folks wouldn't want to raise their kids in New York. I mean, it literally is an international cultural playground. Like it is a space in which all of humanity exists in such finite space Mm -hmm. that it's hard not to know and love your neighbor, you know, or understand what makes them tick. There's so many, you know, cultural outlets of every variety. So like growing up as a kid, just learning how to navigate New York City's subway system, you interact with like the best and the worst of humanity, but it gives you a lens by which you can navigate your whole life and the entire world. So I say like growing up in New York makes you like the best global citizen. Um, Our neighborhoods can be like hyper local, right? Right. Like accent and all, but it also gives you a purview in the way that, um, the world works. And also like, this is the wild part. It's a city where like, no one comes to fail, right? So it is filled with like hopes and dreams and aspirations of people, whether they're fully realized or not, that is the energy of this city. Like people Mm -hmm. don't come here to fail. So you're like constantly in an environment and an ecosystem where everyone is shooting their shot. And so that's there's right. an energy to the ambition of the city that's that's contagious. And also, if this is your baseline, like New York is my baseline, it's hard to go other places. Like yeah. I've tried to live other places, but I'm like, yo, you go the pace. Yo, like, <laughs> I can see that. I can yeah. totally see that. If New York is your baseline and that's what you're used to, I definitely can see that. You know, it's interesting because they say, listen, New York is where dreams are made, right? Like that's that's what they all say. And I feel like I felt that same energy in New York when I lived there. I was like, yo, like I'm out here, like this is, I got to do something. Like my life, like this is, you know, I, what's happening? What's going on? Like I need to make it. And so I agree with that. And I think that there is this value in raising kids there. And because you are a New York City kid, kid as well. There's such value in that. Let's flip that on its head though, because 
Now let's talk about as a mother, as a working mother, as a busy working mother, right? The hustle is hard in New York. Like you're now just the logistics of it. If you've got a, a little baby with strollers and all these things and like the kids, like, you know what I mean? There's parks, but it's it's still city. You're You're surrounded by buildings all the time. Flip that on its head and tell me as your perspective as a mother, you know, how is that with your son? Yeah, it's such a great question. You know, I have to acknowledge a lot of privilege. Um, being born and raised in Harlem, um, my mother, you know, is a Midwest gal. She was a Midwest gal. So she uh, born and raised in St. Louis, Illinois. Um, and when she came here as an artist to kind of make it, uh, she brought a lot of the Midwest values with her. So in a lot of ways, family was always important. And, you know, she lived in a house that her parents built. And so we moved to Harlem in the height of the 70s, where lots of folks would feel like it was um, like the ghetto or the hood, but it was always so brimming with love. And my mom bought a brownstone. So I've lived in a house my whole life in New York with a backyard and a front yard, you know, so like in some ways, what Thelonious, my son now gets is space, which to your description is scarce in New York. Like people live on top of each other, you know, stacked in these tall apartment buildings and what have you. Um, I didn't have that New York experience. Um, and so I think that makes a difference. I would also say that like Harlem is a village, right? Um, for better or for worse. Like, you know, you watch old episodes of 227, even though it wasn't from Harlem, but that was like my gr growing up, everybody, you know, all the old yes. ladies head out the window in everybody's business. If you, you know, if yes. you were out past the lights coming up, somebody would like come and tell your mother about it, whatever it was. <laughs> um, so there was something really like, Community. That's community. community, though. Everything you're describing, that's community. That's beautiful. One thousand percent. And like at the end of the day, no matter how much your neighborhood changes, what you can hold on to and what you should hold on to is community. So I say all that to say that um, I've never I've only seen an additive until uh, uh, raising a child in New York until a COVID hit. And COVID, the last three years, was really like a game changer in terms of, you know, the rich got rich, richer, the poor got poorer, uh, the infrastructures of our cities. You started to really see how the disinvestment in certain neighborhoods really affected the livelihood and the health and wellness and social outcomes of different communities. And it was the first time in all of the decades I've lived in Harlem, and I've always lived in Harlem, that I really started to think as Thelonious was two going into the pandemic and, you know, is now six, like, can I stay here? Can I do this? Because you stop thinking about your own ambition and you think about their ambition. And is there conditions now present that would stifle that for him? Ultimately, you find your pockets of community, you find your people, and then you root deeper into those spaces. So yes, we are still here, but you are absolutely right. Being a parent changes the game in terms of how you relate to your surroundings, your environment, your neighborhoods, and your communities, all of which are slightly different, but all of them are um, critical relationships in mm -hmm. your life as mm -hmm. a, in whatever you do, especially as a parent. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, like you said, I think the biggest thing that that I could even take away from New York is that community is made. And I think that's a misconception about New York City. I when I lived there for my 10 years and I'll say this because I've lived in New York and I've lived in L.A. for pretty much the same time in each coast. Right. New York. You you instantly feel community with the people around you in a different way than you do in LA. Mm -hmm. People are, even though people are so like on their grind in New York and they feel like they're like moving, 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 trying to make it. I never felt isolated in New York. 
whereas I have felt that in LA. And so the difference of like raising kids, I can imagine is just like that same kind of microcosm, right? Like in New York, there's, there's just, I don't know, community is just natural. It's, I think it's a part, especially in places like Harlem, Brooklyn, you know, where it's just ingrained into the fiber of those areas. And I lived in Harlem as well too. And so I just, I feel like, so I feel you, I feel you on that. I feel you on that. So you start off and you're in New York, you, you, um, you go to school in New York, NYU, and then you become a stylist. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of, you know, buck the system of what your, you know, your mom created, funded, started the National Black Theater. Mm -hmm. Instead of following in her footsteps right away, you say, all right, I'm going to go over here. I'm going to be a stylist. I'm going to take this other creative lane because clearly you are a creative. So clearly you are a creative, you know, naturally born into this world of activism, naturally born into this world of um, supporting uh, Black culture, right? But you're like, I'm going to do the creative aspect. So how and why? Sure. I mean, uh New York is a big character in that story as well. Um, I think the thing that folks don't realize about um, what I do now as a CEO of National Black Theater, having my mom having founded it was, you know, I had a real difficult relationship with the theater growing up because it was so clear that um, the theater was my mother's first baby. You know, Ah. it was her first child. And sometimes the first child gets the most attention, you know, often feels like the favorite because they were chosen in a way that like family um, was important to my mom, but she poured everything she had into the theater. So, you know, I have a new relationship, obviously, with our organization and the theater world in general today as an adult. But growing up, it was the kid that took my mom away from me, right? It was the one that demanded the most time. It was the reason why she wasn't at home around the dinner table sometimes. And so I um, never had any aspirations to be in theater. And my mom was so funny. She'd be like, I don't know why I work so hard. It's not like you and your brother are going to do anything with this. And we are like, yeah. you right, you know? Yeah, right, I and read then, that, yeah. Yeah, and then enter New York City. Like as a city kid, like I grew up, it was like the birth, not the birth of hip hop, but like that back yeah. pop culture. And so I was always like down at Washington Square Park, hanging with my folks, my communities. Everybody was in a cipher all the time. And I remember just being like, my mom was an actor, a director. My father was a photographer and an mm-hmm. actor. Like everybody had a lane and I didn't understand my creative lane. Like, mm-hmm. except for I would tell stories through my clothing. Like I always just use clothing as um, a canvas to express how I felt in the moment. It was aspirational. Like if I was in a bad mood, then I would wear this to make me feel happier. All of, so I really like used the colors of clothes to paint pictures. Mm. And um, so one day I was discovered in Washington Square Park by a um, trend forecasting uh, like headhunter, uh-huh. a, a designer at uh, Levi's. Um, who was like, you have wicked, you know, you have cool style, wicked style. Like, have you ever thought that you could be uh, like a trend forecaster? Had no idea what that meant. But so early on in high school, I got recruited to work with designers to go shopping with them, for them to shop my closet. And I was making like, as a 15 year old, like good cash. So I was like, this is easy. So fashion found me. I didn't find fashion. And as I kind of navigated high school and then college at NYU, again, like never choosing fashion, fashion just kept choosing me. And it was a way to pay the bills and people liked what I could do. And so I always kind of gravitated to that. What I wanted to do is I wanted to work in the music industry. Did, did Did fashion just come easy for you? Was it just yeah. like, it felt easy? Like, this is something yeah, that kind of is in my back pocket. Yeah, I mean, I would say that fashion is tricky. For me, style is real easy. Like, mm. how to interpret um, 
how to interpret and how to tell stories through clothing was something I always did. And I remember as a kid, of course, you're always being prepared for what your what your life's purpose ultimately will be and is supposed to be. The folks in the theater world that I gravitated to, my mom's friends that I love so much were costume designers. Yeah. Like I just love the idea that you could tell a story that before you even open your mouth through clothes. So in that sense, it came easy to me, but the fashion industry, I don't want to curse on uh, the pod, your pod, but like <laughs> it's a mind. Blow, but, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. It was just, uh, it's an industry that eats its young in a way that like is gross to me for my right. experience. So right. I was never really interested in fashion as much as I was interested in telling stories through clothing, which made me a really good stylist, you know, it, yeah. made, it made that part of the job easy in a, in a sense, because that's but what you, I was being charged to do. You know, it's fascinating, though, fascinating when you hear people speak and you you connect the dots. You were a storyteller all along. Yeah. You know, in fashion or, or stylist, right? Like you th- that clothes were your way of telling the story. And so it's still, that's how your brain still put it together for you. But I want to back up a little bit because you said something and it triggered me and I was like, okay, let, let's, let's explore that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's explore that. Your mom was obviously uber successful in what she, what she did. But that took a toll, right? Like that comes at a price. And I don't know what the question really is, but do you feel like that price of her success came at your expense with moments, right, that you missed out on in your childhood? Yes and no. I mean, I think I think probably a lot of your listeners and viewers can relate like as a busy mom, all of the gaps you experience in the way that like you would, if you could, you would be there for your children, but you can't. So, Mm -hmm. you know, does it leave a mark? I think it does, right? Like we are shaped by all of our experiences and all of, um, but you know, the one thing that my mom was, I mean, she was lots of things, but she was also my best friend, right? And we were so close and I was her closest confidant and in many ways vice versa so i think that like it did take a toll from like when i had a kid like those maternal instincts i feel like maybe didn't come to me so naturally because i didn't have a mom that had those like very traditional maternal instincts which she was really adamant about was that i would be a global citizen that had deep humanity and valued community and, you know, and how we gather folks, right? Like, uh, and so I got that in a way that is my superpower now, right? So she prepared me in so many ways, but when, you know, the doctors handed me Thelonious, I was like, what am I doing with this little, you know, helpless, lovely human being because I didn't get that so I didn't necessarily have it to give right. um but how did you find it do, how did you find it I mean I think um well one you know um allowing myself to be filled with grace towards the things that I don't know how to do um, I think that I had this moment, like I'm a older mother, right? Like I had Thelonious basically when I was about to be 40 and I had already been the CEO of national black theater for, you know, 10 years almost. And nobody could tell me what to do, right? <laughs> like try me, um, you know, and you fight hard to be respected and to be able to have you know, the space to make decisions in your life and move in the world a certain kind of way, especially when you get to the age of 40. And then all of a sudden, as if overnight, there is this like seven pound, seven ounce thing that is dictating your every move. And I was just like, it was a very hard realization. And I remember just crying night after night, like 
missing my mom so much. Because even though she wasn't that maternal person, she was the person I would run to for answers to every question. And even if she couldn't do it herself, she would help find a way for us to get things done. You know, that's what community organizers do, right? Grassroots, we find a way out of no way. And I remember having a conversation with my mother and my grandmother and my great-grandmother, all of my ancestors, seven generations back. And I was praying and pleading. And they gave me one word that changed my life around all of my work, but specifically around how to parent this child, which was to surrender. And in the moment of surrender, I don't have all the answers. I don't have to be the best. I just have to be present and surrender to this experience and listen to what he needs. And we, and it, and it became this really gorgeous relationship of us growing up together, you know, um, and me surrendering to what it means to be in this chapter of my life and uh, have my heart live outside of my body in this like helpless little thing. Anyway, um, so yeah, that's what shifted it for me. Just understanding the power of surrender yeah. um, and giving it up to the forces and the energies that are constantly around us conspiring for our highest good. Yeah. yeah. And so that's how I kind of got putting. I love that. You know, I think um, my mom passed last year uh, from breast cancer. So my, my listeners probably know that if, if, if this isn't their first podcast listening to me, (laughs) but um, Yeah. So it's, it's, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's been, um, it's been quite a journey, but you know, I think life after her has been in weird ways. It's opened me up in weirder ways. Obviously I'm still healing in other ways, but I try my hardest to talk to her and I, Mm -hmm. and I, and I find sometimes it's so hard and sometimes it comes so easy. And I heard that you channel your mom sometimes. And so what is like, what does that experience look like? And, and and now even hearing you speak, I mean, three, three generations back, you know, yeah. it's a very powerful, powerful thing. So how do you, how do you do that? Yeah, it is super powerful and we all have access to it. Um, I had a friend whose father passed Uh, around the time my mom passed and I remember seeing them and they were struggling um, navigating grief because they were so close. And I said, and he said, how do you, how are you navigating this grief? And I said, well, I talk to my mom all the time. And he said, well, how do you do that? And I said, I just do, right? Like the way my mom passed, she passed of a heart attack. So the last conversation, like I had a conversation with her at five o'clock in the afternoon. And then I got a call at five in the morning that she had passed away. Like there was no, there was like no psychic distance between talking to her and not talking to her. So I just kept talking Talking to to her. her. Um, and, and, you know, they say like energy never gets destroyed. It just changes form. And so some of the ways is, you know, and I'm in this chapter of my life where I'm going to say something and I'm no longer in that chapter of my life, but Early on in the grief process, what I started to do is set intentional space for my for my ancestors, for my mother in particular. So I made an altar, right? Just fresh flowers, a glass of water, you know, a picture, a candle, something that could help me focus into the energy vibration of what it felt like to feel her presence. And that the thing of it is all of those energies that are never destroyed are constantly around us, but they can't engage with you unless you engage with them. So you can just say, help me, you know, help me with ease and grace and flow to X, Y, and Z, whatever you would ask your mom, or I need to feel you. I think when you see 1111, that is your mother so, saying like, I'm here. Like, so hey, this is what you. I was going to talk to you about. Yes, that is it. And, and, it, and, 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 and these breadcrumbs make you know that you're not alone. You don't have right. to be like witchy, though I'm a little witchy <laughs> uh, or like super religious, but like the idea that we are in harmony with everything that ever was Mm -hmm. in order to in every breath 
create whatever will be is a relationship and a responsibility that like really helps to connect with the divine and, um, you know, your guardian angels. And that's the way that I connect with all of um, my mom and my, and the generations. I just, I just love it. I mean, for me, it's, 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 it's interesting because whenever I try to talk to her, I already know the answer. Like I know exactly what she would say. Like, I'm like, okay, I get it. I know exactly what you would say. Okay. I get it. Like it's already the inner dialogue is already there. This episode is sponsored by ZocDoc. Are you that one friend in the group that loves to treat yourself? It's okay. Honestly, we all do it. I know you. You like to get a pedicure and opt for the extra 10-minute foot massage with green tea-infused lotion. Mm-hmm. Refuse to make coffee at home because that fancy coffee shop is right downstairs. Uh-huh. Opt for that extra leg room or even a first-class seat on the plane because your vacation starts now. Yep, I know you. Well, if you treat yourself to the top options with everything in life, why settle when finding a doctor? It is your health after all. Enter ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book tens of thousands of top-tier doctors, all with verified patient reviews. So don't settle. Go for the best and find the right doctor for you. With ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Listen, if I ever need to find the right doctor for me, this is what I'd use. Go to ZocDoc.com coolmom and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash cool mom. ZocDoc dot com slash cool mom. There is something that I read about you that gave me goosebumps. And it was you you were a stylist at the time. You called your mom and said, Mom, I need my passport. Send me my passport, please. She sent the passport. In the meantime, behind the time that you got the passport and you her sending it what happened tell me tell me that how did that play out yeah so um i parlayed styling into starting a swimwear line called lunazul swimwear which is the first time i became a ceo and i remember being at um swim week down in miami and i just thought i was such a boss lady um, selling this swimwear and Sports Illustrated was about to pull my looks and I was yes. like, oh, I'm about to be rich and yes. famous. <laughs> um, and then I got a call from my old boss who asked me, who I used to be their stylist, and asked me to come to Paris because uh, he was shooting a music video about a song that he wrote when we were on tour together and reminded that it reminded him of me and and would I come and be the girl in the video. Now I've never been a girl in a video ever, never had the desire, but you know, once you're invited. That's right. I, like, oh, I, I, I can't, I'm CEO of a company. So I call my mom and my mom was like, always say yes to Paris. Like, figure <laughs> it out. You have partners, say yes to Paris. I, I was like, um, w- when Paris calls, you always say yes, is what she said. So uh, I was like, well, if I'm going to do that, I need my passport. And she was like, oh, Shadi, I'm so stressed, but I will tr- I will get it to FedEx tonight and you'll have it tomorrow in Miami so I could leave from Miami to Paris. And the next call I got was that she had passed away. And so obviously I went home, I was planning her memorial service, devastated, paralyzed with grief and confusion, just like the confusion of the why, 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 why question when someone you love passes, why them, why now, what does this mean, right? And the doorbell rang and it was FedEx and it took a week for the package that I've totally forgot about to be rerouted back to where it was sent. And so I get this package in the mail and I open it up and it is the passport that my mother had sent to me in Miami with a handwritten note. The last thing she wrote said, life is short, live it to its fullest. And that has set me on. Yeah. Yeah. It is the, it is the brand crumbs of like when you quiet yourself enough to remember the things you were taught to forget, you are pointed in the direction of what your purpose for being and living this life and 
you know, is supposed to be. And so it was the ultimate gift wow. that I've ever gotten. Best gift in my life. Yeah. I, can, I mean, I can imagine, you know, wow. Yeah. So, wow. Wow. That's beautiful. I mean, and the timing of it, you know, like, wow. I think there's some things that you can't explain, but you can feel, you know, mm -hmm. and I think in those moments, you can't explain why or how you receive certain answers, but you just have to feel them and accept them. And so I think that's just, I think that's just a powerful message, right? Mm -hmm. um, exactly. You know, I think my biggest challenge too is always how do I, my mom was alive when all three of my kids were born. So all three of my kids did know my mother in some capacity. My biggest challenge though, is my mom was a single mom. I didn't have a father around, but is how do I keep her legacy, the things that she instilled so deeply in me, how do I then pass those down to my children? And especially, I mean, all my children, but especially my daughters, right? Mm -hmm. But like, how do you keep your legacy of your mom in your family? You know? Yeah. Um, wow. I feel you on that, like so deeply. One, that you are a steward of your mom's love and grace and everything that she is has been sprinkled into you as to what you're supposed to pay and give forward. So one is just being the daughter that she raised mm -hmm. is a part of how you keep her legacy alive. How you live your life keeps her legacy alive. I would say, um, practically speaking, um, something that, um, I did and do less so because I told you I'm in a different chapter right now in my life, but um, building these altars mm -hmm. of remembrance mm -hmm. that the kids get to participate in, like, oh, what flower should we put on grandma's oh, altar? Oh, I love right? that. Like, they get to pick the flower. I think she'd like this color. Or, you know, grandma always loved, my mom always loved white lilies. So every time they see a white lily, they go, should we get it for the altar? So there's that. when. Thelonious was really small. I wanted to create the embodiment of the protection that I still felt from my mother on the other side. And so um, I would get, I got a stuffed animal, like a small stuffed animal oh. that was like my mom's favorite animal. And she was a Delta was an elephant <laughs> and also Ganesh's good luck. Yeah. So he had a little baby elephant that was called Gaga Barbara. Oh. And, um, and so he got to sleep with her or I would say, you know why it's an elephant? Because your grandmother always loved elephants or, you know, the things right. that they could really connect to in a loving, nurturing way and a tool for storytelling through the, the stuffy um, or the lovey was right. a way that I kept her alive. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. And I think that's actually tactical tips, you know what I mean? That yeah. people can actually use. Um, and I love that. I think that it's, it's about um, celebrating, continuing yeah. to celebrate, you know, in whatever sh way, shape or form, but continuing to celebrate. Um, you know, it's interesting. So now, you know, let's fast forward and talk about the National Black Theater. You know, you literally for so long told a story in a whole different way. And now full circle moment. I mean, my gosh, full circle moment. Um, you are you took over the National Black Theater as CEO and now it is your moment and it is yours. I'm interested because, you know, I also read at your mom's funeral, your auntie just <laughs> happens to be auntie Maya Angelou, just auntie, just auntie um, said that, you know, no one can do it as well as your mom. No one can do it better. And here you are now following in her footsteps. How did it feel to make that first step into this new chapter for you? And what was the moment where you were like, I got this. I'm good. I got this. So that moment at her funeral, Avery Brooks was reading these words that uh, Auntie Maya wrote about my mom, which she's told, which she like proclaimed that 
everyone should retire my mom's jersey. That feels great as you're just like, yeah, I'll take it on. Yeah, for um, real. So. <laughs> but at that you moment, know? but that yeah. at mo- but that at that moment, did you were you thinking about taking it on? Or were you still in your like stylist days and like you had a swimwear line and you were CEO of something else and you was that even yeah. a part of your mind? Yeah, it was. I mean, oh. it, it's those courageous decisions. I mean, I the, the I didn't have to caretake for my mother because of the way she passed, but I think that any of your listeners or viewers who have had to caretake, mm-hmm. and I don't know what your journey with your mom was. Yeah. It's like no matter what job you have in the world, when you become a caretaker, you don't think about like all the other things. You just kind of laid there. And so like my instinct, you know, the board asked me to come on board for six months. My instinct was like, that that legacy of my mom was that caretaking muscle, right? Like mm. as my best friend, she was a woman, you know, and posthumously, thankfully, she gets the respect and the attention and her due, you know, but it shouldn't have to take someone's death for people to get their flowers. But right. in her life, I, as a woman to woman, I watched her get erased from her own narratives. Mm -hmm. I watched her get erased from her own stories and accomplishments because she was black, because she was a woman, because she was audacious and dared to do things that no one thought was possible. She always raised me to say, impossible is I'm possible. And so I watched this happen. And every time she would reach some like, Astro plane of vision for what the future could be. Either someone tried to knock it down, steal it, or claim it, right? So for mm. me, my yes had nothing to do with the National Black Theater. My yes came from this space of like sacred caretaking, mm. of being so clear that this woman, my best friend, how I understand community deserves everything back that she gave. And I could commit to that. And so things start to fall away, right? Like, you know this, things start to fall away when you get closer and closer to your calling, the things that feel like they define you, or this is this chapter of my life, or these friends begin to fall away when you start to really come in alignment with your, um, with your destiny, with, with, with the, you know, what you were put on this planet to do. And that's kind of what happened happened. All of a sudden, my partners in the company, they got married and they wanted to be wives and mothers. So they were less dedicated to the business. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, uh, someone came along and wanted to buy it. So Luna Zool like naturally fell apart. I thought I could do both. Right. Um, Yeah. So I listened to you and I'm like, the National Black Theater is your love letter to your mother. Yeah. Period. Period. It really is. And that and that's the and that's why I think I can run so fast in the space of theater. Because you know, my mom used to always say, where there is love, there is no fear. Oh. And I feel so fearless in the space that I occupy because it is so and, and, and like as a tactical thing to the folks that are listening, right? Like find your love language, find what it is that you love so deeply. It could be your people. It could be your community. It could be your child Mm -hmm. so deeply. And then like create the opportunities or create what your life looks like rooted in love. My mom used to always say, love is the only currency you can take to the bank. And I truly believe that it is the most powerful currency to take mm-hmm. to the bank. And so, yes, my yes was not about theater. I ran from it my whole life. My yes was this love letter to my mother. And it wasn't until Auntie Maya passed away, mm-hmm. right? That like, I got it. Because yeah. before that period of time, like three years period of time, I was doing what a lot of folks do, especially early on in your career, where you kind of have imposter syndrome, whether you believe in it or not. I'm like, I am the CEO of the National Black Theater. Like, I kept yeah. being like, what would what would Dr. Tier do? What would Dr. Tier do? Mm. But the truth of the matter is, I didn't have a relationship to what Dr. Tier would really do from the perspective I was thinking about it, because again, I wasn't involved in the theater. And so my authentic self could not show up in the times where it 
it required me to be so. And I remember I was like flexing for the gram with this story where I was like, wanted to find the handwritten note that Maya, the handwritten poem that Maya wrote on her, on her stationery when she passed away to give honor, to celebrate her life. And I reread the words and it unlocked something, Lizzie, it unlocked something for me that was so profound, which was like, yes, retire her jersey. Mm -hmm. Yes, no one can do it better because no one is her in the same way no one is me. And so what we do is we bring all of who we are to the table to be of service of whatever our calling or our work is. And that really allowed me to dream bigger, to be ambitious, to be ambitious, to take National Black Theater into all of the spaces and places that maybe my mom might not have chosen based on who she was, but knowing and loving her so deeply, that being the foundation by which I make decisions. That's right. um, I could bring all of me to it. And then that's when I had the aha, like, oh, this is like, let's run, let's do this. Like, oh, this is what we do it. Yeah. I love that because, you know, it's recently I have, I think someone asked me recently, like, what is your motto or what is your, you know, thing on life? And I was like, just live in your skin, love the skin that you are in, but live in your skin with such pride that it's, you know, only you can be there. Only you can live in your skin. That's it. And like, so when you say that, when you're like, you know, listen, my mom brought something different, but yet I bring this because only I can. There is only one me that is able to do what I am doing and what I am here to do. And I love that because I think so much of us as a society now, as we raise our children, you know, I have an 11 year old, an eight year old, a five year old. And as they navigate through, you know, as social media becomes a thing, even us as adults, as we look on social media, constantly comparing, constantly pushing, what is everyone else doing? Oh, they're doing this. I feel so bad about what I'm doing. Oh, I'm not doing enough. I'm doing blah, blah. Oh, I'm too much. Nothing. It's, it's all of this. If we can settle ourselves, just like you said, and just live in our skin and realize that we are the only us. Only there's only one me. There's only one you. Live it to what you can be and the fullest you can be. Dang, just wow, wow. And that, and that, and that. Do you know all of the things that had to conspire to get get you there? To get you there. That's right. Why would you waste that on trying to be somebody else or some model of it? It's like. We are as matter, as energy that has never been destroyed. We are the culmination of so many prayers and so many many dreams that we get to like embody in our uniqueness. Like it's so liberatory to understand your place in this, in the bigger scheme of it all, because you matter, you, you are you. That's why our fingerprints are singular to who we are. And there are gifts and magic in the real understanding and absorbing of what that is. Mm -hmm. It is why and how we can be fearless in any room, because, you know, I always say like, a part of my ability to fly in the work that I do is it has never been about theater. It has always been about love. It has always been about liberation work, right? So if I'm in the business of love and liberation, you know, who shall I be afraid of? That's right. And in some ways, all of us as community members, as parents, there is no more courageous work in the world than to be a parent. You have to have so much hope and faith in not only what you know, but that there will be a future tomorrow. And so all of that, what you don't know and what you don't know Mm -hmm. and what we can be in service to how we divinely listen to like how to protect our babies, how to set our babies up for success, all of the things, no one's getting the same messages you're getting, right? Like, because you are so unique in who you are. And there is, we have to be able as a society, as a people, as mothers to create intentional space Mm -hmm. to honor and celebrate, like you said, exactly who we are. Because the celebration isn't just about 
the wins. Mm-hmm. Celebration sometimes is about surviving the failures. Like right. let's celebrate, let's clap that up, right? That our strength is because we had to endure and struggle and go through the things. And instead of acknowledging strength as a thing that we want to move towards, like, can we celebrate that? Like I have moved past survival and I'm headed towards, you know, what it means to be, to thrive because like I approach everything that's in front of me as an opportunity to create possibilities for tomorrow. And I just think that like, yeah, it's a really exciting way to not live small in your body, small in your life, Mm -hmm. small in your experience, but in relationship to the world, the universe, the the ancestors around us as North Stars to how we create a future we want um, ourselves and our families to live in. And and, and we're all that powerful. That's the other thing. We're all that powerful. You know, like we're never helpless, even when we feel like we're living through helpless times. Mm -hmm. There's always something that you can do in your life, in your community, in your work to make a difference uh, for other people. And that difference makes a difference in the world. Do you know what I mean? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. One thousand percent. I echo everything you said. Um, You know, there's interesting. I was listening to something recently and they posed a question to uh, a table of black women and they said, how do you feel about the term strong black woman? And, you know, some of the comments were, I don't like it. It doesn't give us space to be vulnerable. It forces us to always be strong and feel like we have to um, put on this armor. And some people were like, no, I, I lead by being a strong Black woman. That is what I was raised with. That is who I am. That is how I present to the forefront. How do you feel about that term, strong Black woman? It's a really complex question and a good one. I think Black women have had to be strong our whole existence. Um, And so I do think it is a reality. But I had this um, teacher, Joya, who um, was like a healer. Mm -hmm. And she told me, especially when I was like, really like neck deep in grief and just going through so much, she said, never pray for strength. Because the only way that you actually get strength is through turbulent, hard, troubled, violence, traumatic times. Mm. Like strength is something that is a result of trauma. But that we as women could call in softness. It doesn't mean that you are less able or, you know, but you can meet your life with rest. You can meet your life with vulnerability. You can still be protective. You can ask the universe for the lessons you need to learn in with ease and grace and in a space of softness. Because at the end of the day, strength is also a battle scar of what you've learned. And the way life works is the shit you're supposed to learn, you go and learn. But how we can be a co-curator and how we learn it is calling in ease, calling in, let me learn, you know, dear God, or, you know, mama, whoever you talk to when you conjure, Mm -hmm. you know, you you ask for ease and grace and softness because we don't have to be strong to be, to survive. Mm-hmm. Like strength is a trauma response, right? Right. And if we're constantly in trauma, fight or flight, we actually don't learn our lessons. We just pass the trauma on. Ah. And so I, I believe in a world in which we ask for what we need and want. And what I need and want is to stay soft as I learn the lessons I'm supposed to learn and build what I'm supposed to build mm-hmm. and in spaces that want to annihilate me. And let's just be clear, as being Black, 
being a woman, being a CEO, almost every space was built to kill me. That's right. Right. However, that is their story. That is not mine. And so I walk into every room with the story I want to tell, not the story that folks want to tell about me. And so I don't ask for strength and I don't claim strength as a value by which makes me more capable or valuable. I actually pray for softness. I pray for ease um, in all of those ways. And I think that every Black woman, if we knew that so much of our responses were actually trauma-informed and not love-informed, not experientially informed, like all the things we tell ourselves of why we got to be the way we are, we would reclaim so much more power, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and be courageous in ways that like we are currently brave, mm-hmm. right? And I always say brave is your musculature is very patriarchal, but courage, you know, the root word of courage is heart. Being courageous is making decisions with your whole heart right. and not with what you have to like strap on your back to be able to survive. Yeah. To go out into the world. Yeah. This is a question. Shade, what is your daily prayer? It's going to sound so crazy. So remember, I keep saying I'm in this other chapter. Um, I have a good girlfriend. Oh, I love her so much. Um, her name is Beatrice Dixon. She is a badass boss, uh, founder of Honeypot. Um, oh, yes. And, and he has uh, just a beautiful black sister, woman, friend. And we were having dinner the other night and I was talking about how, like, what my prayer is and like how I feel so guilty that like I haven't built these altars. I, I love building sacred spaces. Mm-hmm. The building that I'm building in Harlem right now, I'm like, it's a living land acknowledgement is like a sacred space. And I'm always trying to get to the thing that can give me the capacity so that I can build these like matrices of manifesting, manifesting spaces. And I said, so like, I know I just need to meditate more. I, I need to take care of my altar more. And she said to me, she said, um, Shade, what you don't understand in this moment of reaching for those spaces is that you're the altar. And that is the chapter that I'm in. So if I'm the altar, I don't have to go nowhere. I don't have to do anything. I just have to be and listen. And so if there is a daily prayer, um, it is, I ask for help every single day from my guardians and my ancestors and the generations of women who know and can see things that I can't to help me navigate whatever is in front of me today with ease, grace, and flow. And so I ask every day, like three times a day, like sometimes I'll set an alarm, like 11 o'clock. Oh, Help me, you know, because I'm holding a lot. That's right. I can't know. To your point, I can't know what I don't know. That's but right. this is the chapter in which I honor myself as the altar itself. And, and so my prayer is for that, to remember that. I like this chapter, Shade. <laughs> I really do. It's a great one. And I, and I love yeah. seeing your journey through it because I'm telling uh, you, I'm- I can't wait for the book. I'm telling you that even in this podcast alone, you have dropped so many quotes and so many one-liners and so many life lessons and so many, I just can't wait for the book. I know it's coming. I'm already predicting it. So (laughs) when when you start writing it, hit me up and just be like, Lizzie, it's on its way. It's getting ready because I'll I'll be the first one to get it, promote it, read it, holler, shoot it from the rooftops. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Shade, for, for sharing your journey with us. Thank you for talking. Thank you, Lizzie. This has been great. I'm your host, Lizzie Mathis, and you've been listening to another inspiring episode on the Cool Mom Code podcast featuring the amazing Sade Lithcott. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay tuned for more exciting content coming your way. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. 
With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.